Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Monday, May 8th. Okay. 2023. Another lovely day. Unbelievable. I heard it was miserable weather while we were away. Yes, rained every day. Um, but now it's... May in this part of the country is an amazing time. I went for a long walk today. Beautiful. Right. Beautiful. Um... And, we, and yesterday we went for a good bike ride. Yeah. We went to one of those, it was an Eagle Scout project. Uh, an Eagle Scout was organizing the Tour de Cranberry. Yes. And, uh, you know, just a little 10-mile ride. But there was also a three-mile ride. And there was a one-mile walk or wobble or, you know, whatever you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the, we did a little... Ten mile ride. But we was, saw people we haven't seen in twenty years, actually. Yeah, some. I mean, uh, but it was, but it wasn't like it was a nothing thing because it was just so fast and so straight. It was like a real quick spin. It was, it was like we were racing around the boards. Right. Madison we Square go Garden. out for a bike ride. We're just da 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 da. But uh, this was racing. For you know, at the very beginning of it, somebody called out, "This is not a race," and then everybody. Went like hell. Went like you hell. Know? And, and uh, you're racing so along kind of these funny. roads, and there's small roads, which are kind of trafficked a lot of times a day. And, but because it was this ride, there was a little protection there. So you were racing. It was also early was, Sunday morning, yeah. 9 o'clock Sunday morning, not much traffic. Listen, when, anyway. I used, when I used to ride in Cranberry in the mornings, I used to ride at 5.30 in the morning before I went to work, and there would be nobody, nobody on the road, of course. Right. And uh, it's pretty flat. And uh, you could just blow through lights. You can do anything. Yeah. And you really could race. But, uh, Although the, once in a while you have the crazed commuter. 5.30 in the morning are pretty good. Okay. Yeah. And, there, and we will ride in Cranberry. Yeah. Because it is totally flat. Yeah. You sign up for a ride in the vicinity of Cranberry. Right. But you don't even think about well, it. Well, the next town <laughs> is called Plainsboro. Yeah. And uh, as I said to you, when about a, a third of the way in, I said, okay, this is the hill. And it wasn't really a hill. It was a little something. But there's, there's no hills. Yeah. There's no hills. So that, so that was fun. It was fun to see people. Literally, we did literally see people we hadn't seen for years. We, you know, we just haven't kept in touch with some of the other people who ride bikes mm-hmm. in Cranberry. Well, look, I'm yeah. always struck if for no good reason. I should have learned my lesson by now. Because uh, it amazes me. People show up with these super bikes. And, of course, I have... You know, this bike I've had for 30 years, which is, uh, I don't know, it doesn't look so great, but it works. It is rusty. It's an old Trek. <laughs> it's an old Trek. But I get service, and there's a, it's not like it's, it's a, uh, you know, a bucket of bolts or anything like that. It, it works, and of course, when I'm on it, it really goes like hell. But, uh, you know, it doesn't look good. No. It doesn't look good. It looks primitive. But you've got the Colnago, so it kind of... Uh, Helps me out a little bit to be with a yeah, girl with a Colnago. Yeah, it's embarrassing to have the Colnago because I really am, do not deserve it. Yes, but it represents. You say, I'm with the girl, I'm with the Colnago. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm not terribly embarrassed. Uh, but it's, yeah. you know, perfect weather around here for uh, bike riding. Just, yeah. you know, warm enough to be out there, but well, cool a, enough to. Right. That's you know, today. Tomorrow it's going to be cool and rainy. Yeah, well, it's, it goes back and forth, right? Back and forth. But when it's good, it's good. Right. So we went in uh, to see a show uh, last Thursday. We saw Oliver. And this is part of the Encore series, which is, you know, the the quasi-revival thing where they 
rehearse a show for about 10 days and put it on generally for a weekend. This one was put on for longer, for 10 or 12 days. Um, and so it's, it's something between a concert version and a full dress Broadway show. And they usually try to choose something which uh, isn't going to rise to the level of a full-scale revival. So the only way to see it this older show is to put in an encore series, something which is not in the top level, but more on the second, maybe third level of Broadway musicals. Uh, that's generally what they do. Yeah, and they, with the idea that a lot of these are forgotten gems. Right, and there's, they always have a, you know, a couple really good songs, and sometimes they're surprisingly clever. Uh, and usually they're very good. Usually you come and away sometimes feeling... Sometimes they're disasters. Sometimes they're disasters. Uh, last few years, more disasters. But... but they put on Oliver. And the first thing you say to yourself is, Oliver, Oliver was a hit show. Oliver is like boldface Broadway compared to the stuff they normally do. Right. So, which is not bad news, but it hasn't, uh, doesn't get revived very much. Uh, but there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, possibly because they charge so much for uh, licensing fees and possibly because it's English. Because it gets revived very regularly in London. Oh, really? It just doesn't, yeah, it doesn't get revived here so much. Um, and uh, in any event, uh, we went. You I liked mean, it. But you did point out to me yeah. that Oliver coming out in 63, yeah. right? First yeah. produced in 62, I think. 62, around there, yeah. It's a pretty old musical. Right. It's, it's, so it's more than 60 years old. There are plenty of people around who probably aren't familiar. Right. Well, well, you would know it. It was a fantastically successful movie uh, in '68, and I think the people, even I, I, I never saw it on stage, but I saw the the musical. I think you saw the musical movie. I know you did. And then we went as a family yeah. on Christmas. This is you Day. and your, your family growing up. It was, it? Yeah. you were a child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, in 1968, and you we loved went it, right? to a nice theater, right, yeah. and we were all, we were all dressed up. I bet they had intermission too. You know, I don't even remember I that. Bet, I bet. Um, but uh, you know, we loved it, and then we went out for Christmas dinner to yeah. a nice hotel or something. It's it was a, a big, it's a Christmas, a memorable show. family outing. Well, it's Charles Dickens, and uh, it was uh, very popular. We got a bunch of Academy Awards. Oh yeah, all I knew all the songs. Right. We did a, we did either a production of it or a review of the songs mm -hmm. in junior high school. Right. And, There's um, a bunch of great songs. Yeah, so and, and, I, more than in, in any musical that I can think of. I gotta feel, I, you know, I know the lyrics pretty well. Right, they're simple lyrics. So, so, and and I enjoy. It. You enjoyed it too, right? What we saw on Thursday. Yes, because it was so familiar. Yeah, and well, it's good, it's, and it was well performed. Right, the, it was well done. Uh, the young guy who played Oliver. Yeah. Uh, you know, just had an exquisite voice. Yeah, he was. You like to hear that voice. Yeah. You know. Um, and you know how all those all those songs. Uh, who it, will buy? Where is love? Yeah, his name is um, the kid who played Oliver's name, Benjamin Pajak. And it turns out they stole a lot of the kids from Music Man. He was in uh, the Music Man, and a lot of the other performers were. As a matter of fact, there was a guy sitting next to us at one point. Right, the reason we know that yeah. is because he, he this fellow turns to me and he says. Uh, view of a relative in the production. Like, this happens a lot. That's why, why am I there? Like, it's a well, school well, play. We do sit up in the nosebleed section. <laughs> but why are we? So. I said, no, I don't have a relative in the production. This is a, prof what are you talking about? He says, well, I do. His nephew, I think it was his nephew, not his son. Oh, his nephew? Yeah, his okay. nephew. His nephew uh, is, is one of the kids, one of the, uh, you know, the street kids. 
who are uh, the gang of thieves in Oliver. The second best thief. Yeah, second best thief. Yeah. Uh, adorable, right? And so we're talking about it. He says, yeah. I said, how did he get that? He said, well, he was in the Music Man. And that's the way it goes, apparently. Yeah. They recruited all these kids from the Music Man. And I, we should mention, of course, that uh, Ralph Sparza was in it as Fagan, the great Ralph Sparza, and uh, Lily Cooper, who was I'm reviewing the situation. That's right. Klezmer music, they called it. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, I don't know if that's really true. But um, he, 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 here's what's funny about this. Uh, it was excellent. And for an encore show, it was clearly uh, above average. Um, the uh, reviews weren't that great. And in particular, the Times review, uh, which I think was uh, not too dissimilar from several other reviews I saw, said that it's just a, a very, it's a problematic show. You know, Encore did the best with a highly problematic show because it's such a grim story that... There's a terrible dissonance between the grimness of the story on the one hand and the bounciness of the tunes on the other. And I'm saying to myself, really? You can't handle that? I mean, that's, that's, that's not so weird. Why, why is that putting you off so much? And, and again, and this is one of those Jesse Green reviews, he says, well, you know, plus they made an effort to emphasize the grimness. And there's some quotes from the director uh, of Encores who's saying, we really have to show people how, you know, the street life, the nature of the street life, like, like the people in 62 didn't get it. They were sitting there going, I don't know, something going on in the street life in London. I don't, I don't get it. But, but now they're going to show it, all right? So number one, uh, that's all PR. They didn't show anything. It was just the standard stuff. It was Nothing. not grim at all. It's not grim it at all. It was the same. Right. If, if it was grim, the details were so small that we right. couldn't see that right. in the uh, nosebleed section. Right. So there's nothing to worry but, about uh, there. Yeah. I mean, the no, first song was... is uh, Food, Glorious Food. They're talking about custard. I mean, come on. It's a show. It's a show. It's not that hard to deal with. But the other thing is you have to recognize, and I'm not interested in putting down Jesse Green. It doesn't interest me at all. But, but it's an old, it's an, based on old material, and it's an old-fashioned musical besides. All right? As you said, pointed out, it's 60-some-odd years old. I right. mean, it, it's not Spring Awakening. <laughs> it's not what it is. You know? right. but also, you said, you know, it'd be like us. Going to a musical that was written in 1917, yeah, that would seem old fashioned. Well, what, when we started going to shows together in, yeah. in the late 70s, yeah, that's what 60 years old was, yeah. So, what, what are you guys expecting here? I mean, and and the music, you know, they're not rock tunes, <laughs> okay, that's not what it is. But you know, when you think about the source, well, did, material, you, did you object to him saying he made a big deal that the, the songs are all hummable? Yeah, why is that a negative? Well, it, it, I, I'm not really sure, except you remember that's the big line in uh, the Sondheim. Right, right, right. Right, you know, uh, can't you write something that's a little more hummable? Yeah, hummable, you know? hummable. It's Jason so, Alexander's so line. It's, it, it is. Yeah, what it, he says to the, the guy's writing, he says, would it, would it kill you to, uh, to write something that, that people could hum? And merrily we roll along. Yeah. And they go, he starts humming some enchanted evening. Bum, 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 bum. You know, like he's giving them a clue. And, and Jesse Green seems to pick up on that. He says... You know, uh, you can compare the show to Sweeney Todd, but, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, it's not Sweeney Todd. It doesn't have the bones of Sweeney Todd. Uh, I, you know, listen, we love Sondheim, but I, I got news for Jesse Green. This is a much more successful musical than Sweeney Todd. I don't know what planet he's on, but it, but it, it, it ran longer on Broadway when it first opened. It has more in the way of revivals, even though I know Sweeney Todd gets revived. And the movie was maybe, I don't know, 100 times as successful as the movie of Sweeney Todd. Okay, so 
It might not be the style that Jesse goes for, but come on. And I mean, also about being old fashioned, I was thinking of it. The, the Some of the characters are a little, well, the villain is a cardboard character. All right. The bad guy, Bill Sykes. And matter of fact, there's a, a, a joke here in some interview I read where they're talking about giving the character some kind of heft. And someone says, well, even, you know, Bill Sykes has some redeemable qualities. And Raul Esparza says, like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm saying to myself, and I said to you at one point, you know, Bill Sykes comes across as Simon Legree. Well, of course, Simon Legree was the villain in Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, and it's the, car- the classic cardboard villain. Yeah. Well, guess what? So uh, Oliver Twist is written in 1837, and uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin is written in 1852. I mean, that... That's when they're right. That's what they write in the yeah. 1840s, 1850s. Right. Right. No kidding. Uh, so, uh, but you got to admit, yeah, you know, um, you didn't feel, and you know, you, you like all the songs, yeah. but it didn't well up some complex emotions. There's nothing complex about this. Not any, uh, an it ounce of complexity. Be a little, it could be a little complex because, you know, Nancy is saying. I love this guy. Yeah. I know he's terrible. He's terrible to me. Yeah. And yet I really love this guy. Um, and, you know, you're allowed in life to have conflicts well, that, like that. That is the one, one link to human emotion, deep human emotion, yeah. subtle human emotion, is the relationship with Nancy in, in the show. You, you put your finger on it. Look, this show is somewhere between Sweeney Todd and Aladdin. Okay? Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> And fine. I mean, uh, so what? I mean, uh, it works on a lot of levels. It doesn't work on every level. And it's not company. No one's saying, I don't know, should he get married? That's not it. Okay? Mm -hmm. It's not that kind of show. Um, And that said, the music's great. Uh, Some of the musical performances were outstanding. And the simplest song in the world, and, you know, you're sitting there, and it's 15 minutes in, and the kid comes out. And he sings Where is Love? And the place goes crazy. Yeah. Crazy. You know, if I'm sitting there and I produce the show and the place goes crazy like that, I'm saying to myself, I think we're okay. So uh, I like it. I like it. Oh, so what do I have next? I have to talk about I'm going to make this interesting for you. The Tampa, <laughs> the Tampa Bay. Does this mean you're talking about baseball? baseball. I got to say something about baseball. The Tampa Bay Rays. All right. Or a team, obviously, in Tampa Bay. They're unbelievably successful. They have, like, uh, historically best record, you know, in the first 40, 50 games of the season. Where they're knocking on the door. They're in the group of the top three best records over 40 or 50 games. Um, and they've been sort of outperforming uh, their payroll for years. And people have been saying... Uh, well, this is a gimmick. This is a one-off. They got lucky this year, or maybe they got a smart guy as GM. And their people get hired away. And there's no real explanation for it, uh, but people keep feeling it's going to pass. That You know, they'll reach down to the mean, and they'll be just an average or worse team because the payroll will catch up to them. This year, it just has become more extreme. They can't be beat. They win all the time. And their payroll is $70 million. Now, let me tell you what $70 million is in the major leagues. It's 27th out of 30 teams. Mm -hmm. But let me make the point this way. The Mets, who are number one, it's not like the Mets, again, $70 million. It's not like the Mets' payroll is $5 million more or even $50 million more. The Mets' payroll is five times 
the Tampa Bay payroll. In other words, Tampa Bay's payroll is $70 million. The Mets' payroll is $350 million. The Mets can't get out of their own way. The Mets are <laughs> under five hundred. All right? So what is the secret? Well, here's an article that called The Rays Are Better Than Everyone in Every Way. Uh, and what they say, it's not just that they're winning and they're not lucky. They're not lucky. Here's what's happening. They score the most runs. They have the highest batting average. They have the best on-place, on-base plus slugging percentage. And the most home run. It goes on and on. Mm-hmm. They're winning all How's the their velo? Good. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's good. But the Times is no explanation. Nobody has an explanation. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, here, here's... Um, I can give you theories, but I don't know. I don't know. I, you, you raise this whole issue and you don't have an answer? But let me say one thing about this. This is a funny thing about it. Yeah. The Rays are off the charts in terms of performance, aren't paying payroll. Where do you think they are in attendance? Low? They're 23rd out of 30. No one goes to their games. But why? If they're so amazing. <laughs> All right. There's t- the main reason is Tampa Bay is Tampa Bay. And it's not, it's not even Pittsburgh. It's just not a great place to have a baseball team. But uh, I think the other reason is this. I think people go to see stars. I think, you know, people go to see Max Scherzer, even if he's not pitching So this well. is a great ensemble. They are a great ensemble. They don't have any stars. And that's what makes them great. They, that's how they keep the payroll low. They've got all these guys who no one ever heard of doing great. And you know what? No one goes to see no one you ever heard of. So the other but what? Owners, but if they're doing so great, wouldn't some of them become stars? And then they go on other teams. Oh, okay. So, you know, if you ask some of the other owners, would you rather be first in wins or first in attendance? I think they say first in attendance. Yeah. So guess who's first in attendance? Not the Tampa Bay Rays. It's the Dodgers. And the Dodgers' payroll is astronomical. So mm-hmm. maybe not every owner is just trying to win games. Maybe these guys have a trying narrower focus. Trying to stay focus. in business. I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it's crazy. It's uh, interesting. It's, yes, yeah, it is. Thank you. I knew I'd get you to say it's interesting. Now, now you can talk about anything yeah. you want. <laughs> I'm going to talk about food. Yes, go ahead. Because it's, also with this great weather, the spring yeah. weather, yeah. it's asparagus time. Oh, I, uh, I knew you were going to talk about asparagus. And uh, I've just been obsessed with asparagus recipe. We we still have we have little roadside stands yeah. where you can stop and buy asparagus picked today. Right, and uh, it's quite wonderful. And let me add something to that. What? Sometimes the roadside stand means nobody's there. You go up, you take the asparagus, and you put well, your... with the honesty box. You, right, yeah. you put your $5 in the box. That's how small small a town yeah, but it's, it's so, we are in. Well, there's a locked box with a slit in it yeah. for the big money. Right. Okay? If, so if you only have like a 10, 10 and 20s are supposed to go in there. Right. And the regular box, yeah. you open, and it says make your own change. So you can take money. Yeah, so do you... <laughs> <laughs> I go there with a twenty, and you know, yeah, you come I'm getting, with... I'm getting fifteen dollars out of the box, but you know, um, I, you know, nothing to stop you from taking this person to yeah. do it differently. I got, but um, so it's it's quite cute, but it's also delicious. Now we get we get fresh asparagus all the time these days. It comes from Mexico right. and other places, and uh, you know that's kind of amazing because right. when you and I grew up, it was canned asparagus, frozen asparagus. And, it, you know, if you lived out in the country and it had access to asparagus like this, mm-hmm. fresh out of the field, um, it, it was kind of a rare thing. And I think I was not I was a teenager 
by the time I first had fresh asparagus and I said, what the hell is this? (laughs) It was nothing like the slimy overcooked stuff that I'd been eating, Mm. you know, my whole life as asparagus. And so, and now, you know, now it's uh, popular to roast asparagus. You put it in the oven with a little olive oil, salt and pepper, and uh, that can be fabulous as well. You can even do that on the grill. Mm. But um, this week I'm looking at, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking I might make, um, the New York Times had a recipe for white lasagna. And it's made with all kinds of spring things like mm. asparagus, peas. You would use frozen peas probably. They're the easiest to get right yeah, now. Okay. They're, you know, you can't beat frozen peas. Yeah. Uh, even when they're frozen, they're I know. delicious. Ozzy loves peas. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and uh, you know, a little, some leek and a little bit of spinach, another great s- spring vegetable. And has a, a nice bechamel, white sauce, mm-hmm. and uh, some Parmesan and um, mozzarella. Sounds pretty good, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So that's a possibility. Okay. I also saw a good-looking recipe for a kind of spring hash with panacetta, that like bacon. So uh, you chop up some bacon, then you um, f- fry, saute uh, little that, chunks of potato. You making that tonight? I I possibly could. Mm. Um, and then add in some asparagus mm-hmm. and a little bit of onion and maybe serve it with a fried egg on top. Yeah, Does that yeah, sound yeah, good? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then la- the last, the other recipe I'm thinking about, I'm looking at, very similar to that feta cherry tomato TikTok recipe. Yeah. Where you put a bunch of cherry tomatoes and a block of feta in the oven yeah. and, till, and roast it till the feta is soft and you toss it all together with some pasta. I saw a recipe where you put asparagus, you cut up asparagus, toss it with olive oil, put a log of goat cheese Mm -hmm. in the center of the pan, put that in the oven, roast it till everything is, till the cheese is uh, soft Mm -hmm. and the asparagus is cooked, you know, like 20 minutes or something, Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe a little bit more. Toss that with the cooked pasta. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Yeah. And maybe a little chopped up tarragon. Yeah. I wouldn't call it. And some peas too. You throw in some peas. I would be careful calling something a TikTok recipe these days. I mean, TikTok, people are down on TikTok. It's going to get banned in the U.S., you know. I think it's just, you know, we have an educated clientele. Okay. They're not going to run off. All right. Um, Just letting you know. Just letting you know. All right. Good. Good. I'm looking forward to the hash. Thinking about asparagus. So, you know, go out in the country, stop by one of those honesty boxes. Yeah. Get yourself some good asparagus. Get yourself some money. <laughs> and then go to the supermarket. But you know what's funny? I'm wondering because asparagus used to be a big deal to eat it the same day it's picked. Oh, you told me that they they changed that for corn. Well, yeah, I've changed for corn. I'm wondering if the um, varieties of asparagus have become. I don't know, but you bought the asparagus yesterday, and you bought so much asparagus yesterday. I know you know human so beings. It's so beautiful. It's almost like a bouquet yeah, a, of flowers in your kitchen. It's, a, it's not, I wouldn't call it I do it just that. have it sitting in water in the yeah, kitchen. Yeah. It's really sparking in the kitchen. Kitchen looks great. All right, so um, I don't know if this is any interest or not. I can't tell what to make of it, but it did strike me. It's an article about Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett's big bets. Of course, Warren Buffett being the ultimate successful investor, you know, richest man in the United States or in the top three or whatever. 
And uh, here's what, here's the insight. He says the famed invest excuse me investor says he, it's not like he's making brilliant decisions all the time. That's not what it's about. He says he basically makes one great decision every five years, and that's all you got to do. One great decision every five years, and he's talking about investing, of course. And he says it also helps you live to be ninety. So you, there are a lot of those years. That you I don't understand how. Well, how can you control that? You can't control it, but he. But it's no help. But he's saying just make you feel better. You can say, "All right, I made some bad decisions, right. but maybe there was one good one." Exactly. But every decision you're making, you're trying to make a good decision. Yes, but it's not worth worrying about it. He's saying. He said, "Look, a lot. They're not. Ninety percent of your decisions are going to be neither here nor there." Uh, they're going to balance out. They're going to be some winners or some losers. Yeah. All you got to do is make one great decision every five years. When you look back on your life, you say, "Okay, you know, a lot of stuff. You're sweating all the small stuff. What really turned my life in this direction was I made this decision five years ago. This decision it ten years ago." It still doesn't help you make the one big decision. There are plenty of people who are completely relaxed. Yeah. They're making bad decisions. <laughs> that that doesn't cause a great decision well, to well up inside. I understand, but it shows you. It just says to yourself, you don't try to hit a run all the time. You just be patient. You wait for it to come to you, and then you're going to get some opportunity every few years to make your mark, and you jump on that. That's what he's saying. That the opportunity this will come. There's no along. help at all. Okay. No help at all. All right, forget it. Forget I'm it. I'm glad he feels good about himself. <laughs> The point is, is that one you, every five years. So whenever you say to me, Dan, that's a bad decision. You made a great decision. It doesn't even matter how many bad decisions. you Next made. time you say to me, Dan, but I if you don't come up with a great decision, you're nowhere. I understand. But on the other hand, when you say to me, Dan, I'm not sure you made the right decision there. I can say to you, it's not important that that's the right decision. I just have to make one great decision every five years. They don't know what's happening. I'm, have to I'm be look at my my watch and say, you're due, baby. You're due. <laughs> All right. There's no help here. All right, so go ahead. Museum update. Yeah, so uh, I did mention last week that the Times had their big uh, section about museums. It wasn't really much help. I, you know, I, I got to say, yeah. I went through it. I wasn't that uh, mm-hmm. enticed. But I went to some of the museum websites, and there are there are some fun things to see around right now, um, including at the Met, there's a um, an exhibition about uh, Wanda Pereja, who's interesting because we've talked about him in the past because there's that great Velasquez portrait of him. He's, he, he was black, and uh, Velasquez is in um, uh, Rome, and, uh, you know, he's from Spain, right? He's hanging out in Rome, right. and he presents this portrait, uh, and it blows everybody's mind uh, at that time uh, in Rome. But the port- what's interesting about the portrait, it's of a black man who was a slave mm-hmm. to Velasquez, prepared his um, pigments, you know, his materials for painting, etc., but then becomes a, an artist, or maybe simultaneously was an artist in his own right. He, mm-hmm. he does, uh, he is emancipated. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so there's right now an exhibition at the Met mm-hmm. uh, about him and about showing, uh, pu- putting together his, you know, not frequently seen paintings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would be fun uh, to go see. There's also a, a, an ongoing, another um, In Praise of Dutch Painting exhibition at the Met, uh, um, which sounds interesting and unearths a few um, less than uh, um, famous uh, 
Dutch painters. So that, you know, that's fine. Uh, there's the Lagerfeld, uh, the um, designer, the fashion designer. There's an exhibition of his works called uh, A Line of Beauty. Mm-hmm. So if you're into fashion, you know, those are always well done at the Met. And of course, I've been wanting to go up on the roof and see the Lauren Halsey um, Met Commission that uh, combines ancient Egypt and uh, modern-day African-American mm-hmm. uh, uh, themes, ideas, people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, you know, wow, this kind of weather, be great to be up on the Met at, at the roof, right? Looking over at Central Park, having a cocktail, seeing this uh, fun sculpture. Um, also, you know, a couple other places. Um, uh, the Now, here's a little um, lesser-known place to go for an exhibition. That's the Bard Graduate Center, uh-huh. West 86th Street. Yeah. And I've seen more than once very interesting little exhibitions. One of my favorites was... Uh, an exhibition on the history of Christmas cards, uh, American Christmas cards, and very well done. Very often the exhibitions are put together somewhere else um, and then uh, brought to the Bard. And uh, so they have a a couple of fun things going on now. One is Shaped by the Loom, and it's uh, Navajo weaving. Okay, so that that sounds uh, pretty good. And then the other is Staging the Table. And so it's, uh, it's a history of table stuff, mm-hmm. um, the, the implements, uh, the menus, uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that sounds uh, like fun to me too. Also at the um, uh, what do you call it? The New York Historic Society Museum. Mm-hmm. Museum of the New York Historical Society. Uh, there's an Exhibition of a famous illustrator, J.C. Leyendecker, uh, and uh, his work. It's called J.C. Leyendecker and American Masculinity. Um, and, well, it, it's um, kind of uh, demonstrates uh, his part in uh, sort of crafting this uh, iconic view of uh, the uh, beautiful American male. Okay. And um, and there are some uh, you know erotic aspects of it, homoerotic aspects of it, uh, and so you know again, uh, but uh, interesting, not high art, but illustrating mm-hmm. that he comes out of. But it's showing his paintings, um, so I think that would be fun to see. I always I love illustrators. I love the illustrators of that um, you know twentieth century period, yeah. the posters, etc. Would I recognize this Lion Decker stuff or not? I think you would. I think even if you you would say, yeah, oh, okay, so he, you would know the look. So like they're posters or something like that. Yeah, oh, yeah, you, um, and uh, you know, if if you don't have to put it on there. Okay, um, you, can you show will me later. know. You it, it will resonate with you, show me and later. you say, you know, oh, that's where that's where that comes from, or right. you know, um, that, and you know, it's. It'd be fun to see. Well, it is always interesting to me when watching uh, Antiques Roadshow. And once in a while, they'll, they'll often say, someone will bring in a painting, because people aren't bringing in Rembrandts. They're bringing in, you know, something that's a little short of that. And it's not unusual for someone to say, well, this guy was a great painter of the Southwest. He was sort of an illustrator. He was an illustrator. 
and then he became a painter or, or he stayed an illustrator and this was the painting on which the illustration was based. So there is kind of a little bit of a gray area, it seems to me, between what you consider a, a painter and an illustrator. I well, I think there are a lot of different ways to go. I think, uh, you know, certainly illustrators are artists. Um, mm-hmm. They just have kind of a regular gig. You know, they have uh, a particular way they're doing it. Their work is being commissioned on a regular basis. Right. It's not so inspirational, but uh, that doesn't... Uh, uh, really denigrate mm-hmm. uh, the creativity that's going into it. Mm-hmm. Um, then you also have illustrators who, on the side, have even a whole different style, or etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are many different avenues you could go on this. But um, it just the thing about illustration is, to me, it always evokes very much the um, the sort of style and fashions of a particular time. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm always interested in, you know, pop culture to some extent because it is a reflection of, of history and it gives you a little window in. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you see things, you see illustrations from the 30s and it tells you something about the 30s, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So um, because there were, you know, the illustrations were done for advertisements mm-hmm. or causes you know, during the, you see the wartime uh, posters, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, over at uh, Bucks County Community College had an amazing collection of World War One posters. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that's some superb artwork, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's, you know, mechanically reproduced and mm-hmm. more abundant than uh, something by oh. Leonardo. Okay. Um, all right. So we, we, the Kentucky Derby took place the other day, and uh, you know we were talking to uh, our real estate agent was telling us what she does with her family. They all like grab numbers from a bag or something like that. Grab and names they, from a hat. Right, okay. and they, that's how they, you know, they participate in their Kentucky Derby pool. And it occurs to me that's the only way to do the Kentucky Derby now because uh, who knows? I mean, they had eighteen horses. Any one of them could have won, and, and one of them did. Uh, a long <laughs> shot. Uh, and in part because a lot of the favorites were uh, didn't run, run because they had minor injuries and they were taken out of the race, scratched at the last minute, Forte being the best example of that. So, you know, even when you take away the top three or four horses, you still have some hierarchy among horses. And of course, that didn't hold up. Um, so, but racing is, has a problem because a lot of these horses, particularly at Churchill Downs, have been injured over the last week or so. Maybe it's a run of bad luck. Some of them have been euthanized. Um and uh, they did have an article in Times. Uh, they were interviewing Michael Rapoli, who owns some big horses, owns Forte. And he was saying what you really need in racing is a commissioner, which is probably right. Because what you have is all these different state authorities and, uh, you know, uh, different horses. Uh, oh, and by the way, and, and there are different drugs that are banned in different jurisdictions. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a mess. So you can race some places. Yeah, and you can't race right. somewhere else. And they yeah. can't keep the records as to whether, whether one horse is being treated badly because he was raced a lot in a nearby jurisdiction. And uh, and the horses probably, very generally, are breaking down because they've been raced too much. But that's, that's a very general statement. You'd have to look at each individual case. But, you know, it, it's a function of how often they're raced, how they're worked out, and what the surfaces are. Not all surfaces are the same. Some of them are much tougher on the horses. So you probably could benefit from a commissioner. There's even an article in the Times the day before, which is ironic. They're saying, gee, it's too bad they retire these horses so early. It's tough to follow racing. And of course, there's nothing better for a horse than to be retired early. <laughs> so I don't know what the Times is thinking about there. Um, 
So, but I want to go back to baseball just briefly because, and you were on to this strangely. I couldn't believe it. Daniel Murphy's making a comeback. Daniel Murphy's, you know, you, I thought he's an old guy. He's 36 years old. But he was a star for the Mets. He was one of my favorite players. And he was a bigger star once he signed as a free agent with the Washington team. He came in second in the MVP voting. Uh, he's the kind of guy, the first time he batted for the Mets, I said, I don't know who this guy is, but he can hit. You know, they, they oh, say didn't he go to the Washington? Yes, I, I said yeah. he just went to yeah, Washington. Yeah. Washington. Um, you wake him up in the middle of the night, two in the morning, give him a bat, he would get a hit. I mean, he just he he the way he looked in the box, he was bounced, he was whatever. You know, the first time I saw him, I said, you know, uh, this guy's the best player on the team right away, mm-hmm. hitting, couldn't mm-hmm. feel it all. Mm-hmm. But the real story is this: uh, he had his career. He earned eighty million dollars, which you know is not nothing. I know there were taxes, but even so. Uh, I don't think he's hurting. Uh, and uh, at one point, he was earning $108,000 a game, which is, you know, something. And now he's playing for the Long Island Ducks, a minor league team, for $3,000 a month. And why is he doing that? Well, because maybe we'll get a shot to get back to the major leagues. But he also, he turns out he likes baseball. He said he missed it. He retired. He's, he found himself watching Ken Burns' documentary on baseball. He saw the whole thing with fresh eyes. As he put it, it was really cool. It's really cool playing. The guys are really cool. And then he started working on his swing. And he said, you know, uh, I realized just watching my kids that uh, I can learn something from them. That I was swinging with my hands, but when they pick up a bat for the first time, they swing with their whole bodies. So I'm trying to rework my swing like my <laughs> like my five-year-old. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's kind of nuts, you know? Yeah. But uh, he's having a good time. I, I, don't, I don't think he's doing it for the money. A lot of these guys, they do bottom out, and they really are desperate to get back to the major leagues, and financial uh, lore of it is a big deal. I can't believe the financial lore means anything to him. But it's interesting. You know, the, you go think about Tampa Bay, you know, and I was emailing with some friends of mine who were Met followers, and I said, don't you think it would be great if Murphy was on the Mets? Wouldn't you rather see him batting? in a critical situation, than Daniel Vogelback, who is their left-handed DH. And they all said right away, no kidding, no comparison, rather have Daniel Murphy. But if you're the Tampa Bay Rays, you could sign Daniel Murphy yeah. and take a chance on him. If you're the Mets, you can't because you've got a contract paying Daniel Vogelback whatever you're paying him and these yeah. other guys. They're too invested in him. They can't maneuver their lineup because everybody's jobs are really pinned to the success of these players to whom they've committed millions of dollars. So... I don't know. It's a tough business. All right. So finally, you know, we have always uh, enjoyed uh, Roundabout Productions at a small theater called the Laura Pells Theater. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, Laura Pells died. Oh. Well, who was Laura Pells? That was the question. Who's Laura Pells? And the Laura Pells is a nice theater. And uh, you say, well, I never heard this name before, but I'm certainly glad to be in the theater. And who is she? And I'd like to tell you that Laura Pels is this great actress or this great theatrical figure. Uh, and the story is that she was a supporter of the arts, which is a plus. And how did, you know, she get the money? Well, her second husband had a lot of money. And when she divorced him, she got the foundation. And, <laughs> and the foundation gave a lot of money to roundabout the theater. And they said, oh, that's a lot of money, Laura. We're naming the theater after you. <laughs> so now we know. Yeah, but she had stipulations about what she wanted. And she actually did participate in what would be shown at the various... And she was not just about Laura Pels and Roundabout. She was she invested in a lot of other nonprofit theaters. Uh, and apparently the one thing she always insisted on was no musicals. 
<laughs> and if you think about it, uh, we never saw a musical at Laura Pelt's. No, we did. What did we, what did we see? Um, we saw the, um, you know, the, the sign time in the woods, into the woods. That was at Laura Pelt's? Yeah, absolutely. The fiasco production? Yes. Well, yeah. Somehow they kept Laura away. We also from... saw a production of um, Merrily there. That was at Laura Pelt's? Yeah. I can't even remember what theaters we were at. Look, there's a problem there because Laura Pell said no musical. Yeah, you got to tell me before you make these big giant statements. Uh, never it, says, did this. it says in the article that that's what she said. She said no musicals. Maybe, they, you know, money changed hands. I don't know what to tell you. I'm telling you, we were sitting there oh, in the my... little theater. Oh, my goodness. Well, all right. All right. Well, I guess it didn't hold up. I guess it wasn't an ironclad rule. So well, they, were... they probably did it while she was off on a trip to, you here, know, here we go. Monaco so or something. Incredibly involved and hands-on, they said. Uh, Laura Pell's read all the scripts that were submitted for funding. Uh, she didn't fund the ones. That I, that's uh... must be. There were rules. Productions had to be run by accredited nonprofit theaters. A full script along with a 500-word statement had to be submitted. And three, musicals need not apply. But you're right. She did not produce those shows. All right. Well, there you go. The mystery of Laura Pell's solved. All, All right. right. Well, I got to go chop some asparagus. Yeah, I'll get to it. I don't want to stop you. I'm looking forward to that hash. That hash. That hash. All, All right. right. So until uh, next week. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. See ya. Oh, adios.